0: All right, we are back uh, in the parables again this week. We've been uh, in the book of Luke all year. We started with the birth narrative, then we went on uh, to encounters with Jesus, and now uh, we're looking, and then the passion of Jesus, the Passion Week, and now we're looking at the different parables. And so uh, we're looking at, uh, for some of us, a very familiar one today. In Luke 14, uh, we'll start in verse 25, and we'll end in verse 33. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you does not renounce all that he has, cannot be my disciple. The word of the Lord. Well, up to this point in the gospel, uh, you will have noticed these first almost 14 chapters that Jesus has been doing a lot of miracles. Jesus has been... Engaging in these drop-the-mic kind of teaching. And so when you see in verse 25, you see a very likely result of those two things. And that is that he has gathered a great crowd. So the atmosphere around Jesus is electric. People are lining up to see what he's going to say next, what he's going to do next. But Jesus knew that this crowd's enthusiasm for him did not mean that they were loyal to him. And that's what Jesus is really after. He's more interested in making disciples than gathering crowds. So he gives this teaching on what following him is actually like. And let me tell you, Jesus doesn't pull any punches, does he? Jesus clearly isn't trying to win a popularity contest. He knows that his confrontational statements are going to mean that some will walk away. Now, if Jesus were a normal salesman, he would have given all the benefits of following him and then hiding all the costs. It would have been like, you're going to be in a community. You're going to have eternal life. You're going to have purpose. That would keep the crowds around. But it might mean he doesn't have disciples. See, this is kind of what Ticketmaster does, isn't it? You know, your tickets are $54, but with fees that are $118. Well, Jesus doesn't do this. And what Jesus says here isn't so much hard to understand as it is hard to accept. It's hard to receive. And he starts out his teaching by requiring his disciples to hate their families. Did you catch that? Their parents, their spouse, their children, their siblings. So we've got to understand what Jesus says here isn't contradicting the rest of the teaching of Scripture. I mean, Jesus affirms the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment is to honor your father and mother, and he affirms it in Mark chapter 7. So how can you honor your father and mother in Mark 7 and in the fifth commandment, but hate your family? Well, then in John 13, Jesus says that we are to love the way that he loves. In Matthew 22, we're called to love our neighbors. And in Luke chapter 6, we're even called to love our enemies. So surely... Jesus wants us to love our family, right? Well, you're right. See, what Jesus means by hate isn't open hostility. It's not to hate actively. Hate in biblical usage means in a comparative sense. He's saying that your love for your parents should pale to your love for Jesus to the degree that when you compare the two, it can be said that you hate your parents. Let me use food as an illustration. I love all pizza. I've never had fresh pizza that I didn't like. I mean, you could give me a Little Caesars and a spice pack. I'm going to have a good time. But when you compare it to rolling oven or pies and pints or donatas, some of my favorites, I hate Little Caesars. And it's not that I actually hate Little Caesars, but I do in comparison to the pizza that I love most. Take ice cream. I'm pretty sure I've enjoyed every bite of ice cream I've ever consumed, even from that big, cheap tub of Neapolitan that you can get. But, when I, but I hate Neapolitan ice cream from the big, cheap tub when you compare it to black raspberry chocolate chip from Grater's. So when we talk about hate, when Jesus is using the word hate in Luke 14... He's not mean active hostility. He just means to love less. And even loving less should sting for you and for me. See, for some of us, we have great parents. We love them. We're very aware of how much they've sacrificed for us. You've got great affection for them. They have great affection for you. And when this is the case, it's easy to live for their pleasure, isn't it? You feel this subtle pressure to pursue the things that they want us to pursue. But what happens when you face a choice between doing what our families want and doing what Jesus wants? Then, where does your loyalty lie? Now, others of us, this whole over-loyalty towards our parents, it's not a struggle for some of us. We don't feel very much loyalty toward our parents because of the ways that we perceive that they came up short for us. So we look at this text and we get to hate your father and mother and you're like, I'm good with that. I'm with Jesus on this one. Well, not so fast. He didn't end at father and mother, did he? He said, spouse, sons and daughters... Here's my observation. For those of us who have distanced ourselves from our parents, we are more apt to cling to our spouse and children, and we long for our spouse and our children in such a way that it rivals our commitment to Jesus. And so Jesus is an equal opportunity offender here in Luke 14. He hits on both groups. Now, when you really look at this teaching, what it would say to the original audience It would have really stung, way more than it does for us. They were so much less individualistic. They were much more communal. They weren't trying to build their own identities. They just adopted their family and national identities well before they thought about creating their own identity as an individual. So for Jesus to say to hate your family would have been especially hard for them. So how about you? How do your loyalties need to change when it comes to family? Have you built your identity on your ability to make your parents proud of you? Maybe you're living for their future approval. You're trying to live in such a way today that you can procure their approval out into the future with some achievement. Or maybe you're quite sure that you'll never have your parents' approval. You know how acute the pain of rejection can be. And so what you've done is that you're so committed to be the most affirming, intentional, committed parent possible because you know what it's like not to be affirmed. And then your children rival Jesus. Or maybe you think the purpose of your life is to make your spouse's life as easy and pleasurable as possible instead of being driven by a love and deep desire to see your spouse grow in holiness. Regardless, Jesus is saying that it's very possible that your family needs to take a backseat to him. But did you notice there's one more item in that list? Did you see it? Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, maybe the last seven minutes or so, you've been thinking, gosh, I think I'm off the hook today. (laughs) Family isn't my thing. Some of us aren't family people. We're much more independent. Maybe you're single. Maybe you're married. Maybe you have children, too. And you've still chosen to make your career more core to your identity than your family. And that's true for a lot of Westerners. You might say, I, I'm my own man, I'm my own woman, I belong to myself, I'm responsible for my existence, for living a life of purpose, for defining my identity, for interpreting meaningful events, for choosing my values. No one else has the right to define me, to choose my journey in life. Does that resonate? Does that sound like something you've said or that you've heard? Well, let me ask you a question. Well, doesn't this ability to choose your own way without any external limitation come at a great price? See, once you're liberated from all social and moral and natural and religious values, then you become responsible for the meaning of your own life. Now, you bear the burden to justify your life and craft your own identity. And some of us, we respond to that... We see it as a challenge, so we get busy. We get busy about self-improving. We get busy about optimizing our health and our money and our time so that we might discover and then express who it is that we've become. Even your own life. So which is it? What competes for your loyalty to Jesus? Is it your family relationships? Or is it your individual endeavors? The thing I love about this passage is that Jesus doesn't say, if that's you, I'm done with you. Rather, he holds out a prospect for change. He holds out an alternative path for life that you're actually made for. I've been reading this book uh, called You Are Not Your Own by Alan Noble. I would recommend it. It's really good. And in it, he gives an illustration about zucosis. Never heard about zucosis. But here's what it is. It's the term that's used for animals in zoos who constantly pace back and forth in their cages. Ever seen that? The technical way of defining it would be it's the repetitive, invariant behavior patterns that have no obvious goal or function which occurs in captive animals. So this term, this term zookosis, it derives from two words, zoo And psychosis, you put them together to talk about how the zoo makes animals crazy. But think about zoos. These habitats, and most of the zoos at least in our country, uh, have been procured by experts. People who have PhDs. Their habitats are as close as they can get as they are out in the wild. Their diet is is is, is to a T selected to what they would normally eat. Yet despite their best efforts, these animals still live in zoos and fake caves. They still have to smell churros. They still have to have their picture taken by humans all day long. So what happens to these animals? Well, these poor animals are mentally ill. They don't belong there. They're being driven mad. Now, I'm, I'm not part of a bunch of Facebook groups that are trying to do away with zoos. I went to one last weekend, probably go to another one this summer. But I think this is a good illustration, because we're not caged in the same way as lions are at zoos, but we're still suffering from our own kind of zoocosis, aren't we? See, just like the lion, our anxiety stems from living in an environment where we have made family or some kind of individual pursuit the chief end for which we exist. We have misunderstood what we're made for. We were made for something bigger. What is it? Did you see it in verse 27? We were made to take up our crosses and follow Jesus. We weren't called to take up Jesus' teaching and follow him because that would crush us. What we're called to is to take up his cross. And that means you've got to see yourself as a condemned criminal. It means you have to remind yourself that you have died with Christ on the cross. The penalty's been paid. Therefore, the cross you take up will involve a life of sacrifice. But this life of sacrifice isn't to atone for your sin. It's not to pay penance. You don't take it up just because you feel guilty for what Jesus has done for you. You pick it up because you know it's what you're made for. You're living into the story of Jesus. It's a story you don't have to create. You don't need to write your life story by discovering the ins and outs of your personality, and then positioning yourself perfectly in a strategic place to maximize your uniqueness so that you can be as successful as possible, achieve a lot, and then have people affirm you to death. You don't have to please your parents. You don't have to have a perfectly fulfilling marriage. You don't have to raise kids that will love you back that you'll be proud of. You're free from all of it when you take up your cross. When you take up your cross, you have an emotional wealth because the cross tells you how much you're loved. See, your love for your parents pales to your love for Jesus because in the end, your parents' love for you pales to Jesus' love for you. See, more than likely, your parents never died for you. And even if they did die for you, Their death was qualitatively less costly. See, Jesus not only physically died to love you, he also gave up the riches of heaven. He endured the scorn of his own people. He was rejected by his closest friends. He absorbed the judgment that was due not for him, but for you and for me. That's how much he loved you. So being his disciple is what gives our life meaning and purpose. We can flee the zucosis of family. We can flee the zucosis of hyper-individualism that makes us crazy in order to pick up our cross and go live out in the wild where we're created to live and move and have our being. So where do we start with discipleship? Where do we restart with discipleship? Well, Jesus tells us, he gives us two parables here, starting in verse 28 and ending in verse 33. And both these parables are really all about evaluation. In the first one, the builder just, he, 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 just, he doesn't just get out his tool belt and start building stuff. That would be like just walking out of the room and saying, I'm going to be a disciple and sacrifice my life for Jesus. I'm going to live in light of the cross. I'm ready to go. But that's not the first step. The first step is to sit down and take an account of what it's going to take. See, the builder, he's got to sit down and think, what's everything I'm going to need? What's my plan? So that he can see if he's got enough money to pull off his desired project. you got the king as he goes into battle. He's got to sit down first. He's got to make sure he's got the resources necessary to fight the battle that's in front of him. And so you and I, we need a season where we sit down and we reflect about where we're at and where Jesus is calling us to go. And here are some questions for that reflection. Here are some questions for your time of evaluation. First one, how does living a life of sacrifice change when I'm motivated by the love Jesus has for me versus living a life of sacrifice only out of a place of duty? How can I keep Jesus' love before me in my eyes as I set out to follow him so that my following him doesn't become this doing penance? It doesn't become doing it out of guilt. It doesn't become trying to atone for my own sins. But I'm doing it knowing that this is what I'm made for. Another question. What family relationship most likely is going to interfere with you following him? Jesus. And when I say that, I don't just mean the ones that you have out in front of you. I also mean the one that you imagine, the ones that you so deeply long for that are good and healthy up to a point. But then they begin to interfere. The, parent, the, the relationship you wish you had with your parents, the relationship you wish you had with, your, with a spouse, the relationship you wish you had with children. What interferes? Another one, what might it mean for you to hate even your own life? Now, I'm not talking in a self-loathing kind of way because that's self-centered. It's self-centered because you just feed on your own pity. What I mean by hating your life means that this self-forgetting, where you lay aside your pursuits, where you lay aside your career aspirations, your financial goals, your political convictions because... You hate even your own life. You're going to follow Jesus. Now, there's lots of other questions you could ask. But after this time evaluation, I'd encourage you to get with somebody. I'd encourage you to give a few people room to speak in to what it looks like for you to follow Jesus. And by doing so, you're assuming you've got some blind spots. You're also assuming that you're going to need some help along the way. So be careful, be careful of picturing picturing Jesus calling you to be a hermit. He's not calling you to be a hermit. He's not calling you to be a beggar. He's not calling you to be a wanderer. He's not necessarily calling you to take a vow of poverty. And in many ways, that'd be a lot easier, wouldn't it? It'd be a lot more cut and dry. (laughs) You're either in or you're out. Like we talked about last time I was here, this whole issue of taking up your cross and following Jesus, it's progressive, it's gradual. It takes time. But what's true is that this is a process. It's a process where we relinquish our material things, our relationships, our ambitions. We even relinquish the wounds we lick so that we might grow in our belief that Jesus loves us more than anyone or anything else. And in our journey of discipleship, may we, Hope Presbyterian Church, have the courage to follow him wherever he leads. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we uh, need this kind of courage. <laughs> we, we need to know that you still love us. And uh, Lord, that if uh, you just wanted to condemn us, this teaching would have looked very, very, very different. But instead, you just challenged us. And so Lord, I, I pray uh, that uh, we would uh, do this work and do it in community. Do it with the help of other people. We pray this for your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.